Hi, thank you. Uh, thank you for having us back. Very happy to provide another update on Altius Minerals Corporation. So Altius is a diversified royalty company, number of uh, quite long-term royalty assets in its portfolio, and these are arranged broadly around some big macro thematics. The, the pillars, I would say, of our portfolio include potash, high purity and iron ore, basin battery metals, and renewable uh, renewable energy. Growing business, lots of growth catalysts uh, that have come through in the past uh, year or so. Again, very, very long life portfolio. So we see decades of growth embedded into our structure um, right here and now. Right, some some big, some big, big thematics uh, outside of presses metals, nice to see. Um, and one thing that they all seem to have in common is the ability to kind of throw off a lot of cash. You just reported um, you know, 103.5 million bucks for 2022. Um, is there more to come? Uh, centuries more. Okay. From where? Wait, 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 do, you, do you want to kind of run run through? Because like if, if I look, look at your list there, I would normally kind of gravitate towards the kind of battery metal side of things. But, you know, potash, people, you know, are expecting potash to kind of fly. Uh, but it kind of, it, it, it sort of hasn't. But for if you, it is throwing off a lot of lot of cash at the moment. So is that side of business um, you're looking to something you're looking to build on? Man, I could go on. We could do a whole interview on that potash portfolio. But broadly, what I would say is that it's almost absurd how short-term the narrative around potash is the day against the real dynamics that are out there. Put this in context, like unconstrained demand for potash last year in the world, basically this is just what food was grown, what nutrients were stripped from the soil, what needs to be replaced, was about 70 million tons. The world received about 61 million tons, so there's a shortfall in the soil right now. It needs to be replaced. It's that simple. You can defer for a year or so, but that's it. The narrative that's out there is that those prices cause demand destruction. Well, demand destruction is not even an option here. The alternative to that is basically a food crisis. And anyway, but people are focused on literally, you know, who's got a wheelbarrow full of potash in what warehouse today and are completely missing the fact that this is a market that will grow to 90 million tons over the next decade, the majority of the increment of new supply had previously been expected to come from Belarus and Russia. Well, put your head around that one. Um, the, the Really, the only alternative to that is Canadian-based supply growth to come in and fill that gap and then to meet that increased demand. Yet the price is falling. It's fallen below the price that's required to incentivize that new supply. And like I said, the alternative here, you know, it's not that you don't get enough wire to build a wind turbine the alternative here is like a global food crisis pretty pretty fundamental stuff it's, it's pretty fundamental stuff but you know when most people have looked into potash like i i, I remember bhp saying pot, you know potash is the you know, one of the top three uh commodities for i i think it was 2020 right and then didn't kind of really materialize so for, for me when i listen to stories like that about you know how yeah, important is to your growth and your and, and the cash flow that the, uh, the, in, into your business and back out to your shareholders um, is picking the right horse, right? Because you look at Belarus, you look at the uh, Russia Ukraine situation, that should have impacted and driven prices up. It hasn't. It's a slightly opaque market. People talk about cabals and, and those sorts of things. So picking the right horse is really, really important. So you've obviously done that, but to grow the potash as an important um, part of your portfolio going forward, you're going to need to 
have a view on which jurisdictions are going to work, which companies are going to work, and and how you play that. Well, right, you're right. Traditionally, you know, as this global steady demand for potash out as a reliable uh, trend as you can look put out there. It's a, it's a function of global population growth and uh, increasing agricultural yield. Today, we produce almost three times as much food per unit of farmland as we did in the 50s. There's only one way that happens. It's through scientific approaches to fertilizer application. you got to replenish the nutrients that come out. So over the years, last 30 years, for example, uh, that supply has come, you know, in, in more or less equal measures from Russian production, Belarusian production, and Canadian production. Uh, collectively, they represent over 70% of the world's uh, potash production. Um, so we've staked our, you know, our horse is uh, is the Canadian production. So the mines that we hold royalties on represent almost a quarter of the world's potash production. Um, now, ask yourself, a market that's growing at 3 or so percent compounding year, and it's a big number, so you're getting that compounding effect really start to show up in, in terms of annual demand growth. Um, well, we make a basic assumption that our assets that have resources in some cases that can last for you know, more than a thousand years at current production rate will probably hold on to their glo- their share of global market uh, growths or long, long periods of time. Some would argue that's a very conservative assumption, particularly in the current dynamic that's out there. Since we've owned the royalties, they have actually increased market share. They've grown at about 5% a year in volumes against global demand growth of about two and a half. So they're actually earning market share today. And now their window for doing that has probably never been wider in history than it is today. Do you really think right. that there's any comp- there's any competition between the cost of capital for building out new production in Belarus today versus expanding brownfields mines in Saskatchewan? Y- yeah, it, 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 there's, there's so many moving parts to this. Um, look, I, I kind of wanted to have a kind of romp, romp through the kind of like your, your four pillars, as, as, as it were, um, to just, you know, better understand the the the, the business plan going forward because you know, once once companies reach a certain size you know people kind of look at them and go you know you're a billion dollar plus company now once you reach a certain size people just syndicate well the leverage isn't there i'm not going to see those sorts of those sorts of returns the growth story is not there in the way it, it was before so i'm just kind of intrigued to see how you in, in terms of your strategy are looking at those four pillars are there will it continue to be four pillars will you you know drop one uh, and how do you grow each of those stories? Or how do you sort of infiltrate or build build up value, uh, future value, you know, in each of those sections? I mean, have, is, what, what's the plan, and has it evolved as a, as a result of you know what you've been doing over the last three years? Not three years, twenty five years, to be honest with you. But well, I do, well, I, I'm, I'm talking the share, share returns of the last three years. You know, that increase in in share price, that increase in market cap, enterprise value, it just it just kind of shakes out shakes out the plan sometimes for companies. So we've seen a lot of you know you know changes here. Have you have you made well, any no, changes? No. In fact that that will be a sign of a problem in our story if there were changes, because this is long term investing at its at its best. We are so fortunate and lucky. We have a shareholder base that is reared and hands teeth. Like they actually have a long term focus. And that gives us such mandate flexibility. It's such a luxury, I can't even describe it. And that ability to invest for the long term in this business that we're in, particularly at the royalty level, um, you know, it means that you make very few 
but very thoughtful bets on assets that are of long duration, that will expand over time, that will benefit from inflation over time because increasing costs at the mining operator level manifests ultimately as higher prices. As royalty holders, you get all that benefit. So again, I mean, there's almost more danger in trying to do too much. You can get impatient and then actually screw things up at the corporate level while the assets are actually going to just deliver the growth anyway. So that's something we're always very mindful of. But macro, these big trends are fine. We selected them because they actually are going to be drivers of increasing demand for the particular commodities that were associated. And so then it's just finding the assets that will be part of that long-term growth story, attaching to them and letting them play out. That's the game plan. It's really that simple. Right. Okay. And, and, and talking of keeping simple, I do want to keep some of this. So many people are coming, coming new into the commodity space. There's a lot of people are new coming into royalties and, you know, and again, in terms of this kind of uh, long life uh, royalty exposure that, that you're giving in with, with your fill, um, you know, the potash, electric metals, renewable energy, and high purity iron ore. Um, I want to understand what the, what the levers are, what the key drivers are, because, you know, we've always said to people that kind of um, listen to our weekly shows, you know, royalties in a way are kind of inflation proof, but I, I guess you could also argue from what you're saying, they're kind of inflation, ben, you know, um, beneficiaries Absolute. in this market. Absolutely. Like there's a debate alive out there right now in terms of what discount rate to use for mining companies. Obviously, the risk cost of oh, capital yeah. has gone up. Shouldn't discount rates follow accordingly? And I mean, ultimately, that inflation or that interest rate increase is a function of higher inflation, right? So higher inflation ultimately should manifest as higher discount rates for mining assets. Does that follow through for royalty companies? In fact, the opposite is true. We're not exposed to the, you know, the a deterioration of the quantum of future cash flows in the future that inflation results in, we're actually beneficiaries of it. So you could make the argument that discount rates in a high inflationary environment for royalty companies, particularly the long lifers, right? The ones that are multi-cycle uh, should in fact get reduced in inflationary environment. I know that's a bit of a mental leap, but it's true. It's logical. No, we 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 we've seen a few conversations happening at, at PDAC, which I'm congratulations for avoiding, uh, like me, because uh, it's it's yeah, there's a lot of lot of conversations, really. a lot of people shouting. It's very overwhelming. Um, some good stuff comes out of it. I think some of the good stuff that's come out um, has been. I think it was. I think possibly Robert Friedland was talking about the way that companies are valued on an NPV basis. And I know, I know you've been talking about DCF there a, a little bit, but do, do you think the way that you as world companies view value is different from the way that the market has got used to valuing companies and like what do you and again coming back to those levers of like what should people li be looking for what's really important uh, as far as the companies that you've picked and the companies that you're you're uh, you've got royalties on i've actually seen robert give that talk recently it's obviously the new you know it's to be in his bonnet right now um and you need to talk about China more generally, I suppose, as being a bit archaic and how, you know, major mining companies don't use this as a, as a measure anymore, particularly again for tier one mine, how Chinese state mining companies don't use these models. And really what he's getting to is that that model undervalues top tier mine. I think inversely, it also actually overvalues that mediocre, there's both sides. It's a convention, right? It's a standardized convention that's evolved over time. At its heart, what it does is it takes the current mining production rate and assumes that that runs forever. It takes constant prices and runs that essentially 
forever. I mean, not know none of that's true, but in some ways, you know, there's logic to it if you're a mining company because costs will offset that increased price. And so, you know, just make it easy here and just run it all out kind of flat. Um, but these top mines, they don't stay at constant production by definition. They are platforms for future growth. As demand growth grows, they expand, they expand, they expand. So that's ultimately what an MPV model misses. So it's not discounting per se. It's not an MPV model, which is just a basic piece of math that's at fault here. It's a bit of laziness on the inputs, right? An over-standardization and less discrimination around the quality duration of asset. And it becomes extreme actually at the royalty level. There's definitely a big difference in how I would value as a mining company a multi-generation mine that creates so much, gives me so much option value long-term versus one that's, you know, one cycle long where I'd better bloody well get the price right. Right. I mean, or, you know, I'm going to get my head handed. So there are huge differences. I, I think the debate that's starting here is fantastic. Not least of which, because I think we're probably going to be one of the biggest beneficiaries. If, if you let me, I'll give you a quick article. Oh, I'd love it. Oh, different. What we're talking about here. So today, our potash portfolio, arguably the longest life mines that exist in the world, thousands of years. You're talking about Saskatchewan. Yeah, um, so the world, we have world before, before, right. them have mine lives based on current production rates that reach, you know, well into the 3,000. Well, the current analyst models, standard analyst models, and again, not picking on them. They're, they're constrained in many ways by their, by their markets, by their leaders, and by convention. Uh, anyway, they collectively value those royalties on average at about 350, 360 million Canadian dollars. And that assumes current production rates will be the same forever. So, so what happens is obviously the, the cash flows from year thousand from now discounted at 5% are worth very much today, right? They don't get pulled into that present value very well, but they're there. It sits in the ground. But now if you just take that earlier thought that these mines are likely to at least hold global market share. They're the most advantaged mines in the world. We need this stuff. The competitors are troubled. So a basic assumption that, that they hold market share long-term. So that would mean 2.7% gross. That's the global potash global, global demand rate. So now you just take that current production rate and you escalate it at 2.7%. That simple tweak to the model drives the value of those royalties to $800 million. Now, which is more right? Which input is more right, do you think? The assumption that these will hold forever and essentially lose global market share in a, glo in a growing market, or that these best-in-class mines in the world, with the best operators, the most fundamental demand rationale behind them that you can possibly imagine in the whole of the commodities complex, won't at least hold global market share? Which is the more logical assumption to start with? Because the difference between the two is it a three hundred million dollar asset, or is it a seven hundred million dollar portfolio? Right? These are rate or never worked out. Right, and like as, a, as an ex banker and an ex spreadsheet jockey myself, you, you can you can make these things sing any which way you want to swing the argument, right? For whether 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 <laughs> whether it be on a DCF and NPV basis, quite frankly, uh, ASIC or you know PA, whatever you know the the, the, the numbers, you, you can manage the numbers, right? But what None of that is doing for you at the moment is giving you the values that I suspect you think you're worth. You're sitting in a, I'm not quite sure what the enterprise value is today, but it, um, it's, it's below what I 
I, I suspect from what you're saying, you think it should be. So what, again, come back to that question, what, what is it that we need to be looking at within the portfolio of all of those four pillars that, that, that you've got, that you see that perhaps other people aren't? Well, again, that was one clear example that like if somebody offered me what the analysts are valuing these thing royalties at right now, I mean, I'd laugh when I live in Aspen. Like that would be hilarious, quite frankly. They were all, we've owned them for 10 years. We've gotten payback from them. The MPV of them today is worth twice, by analyst measures, is worth twice what it was a decade ago. It'll be twice that again in a decade. These are growth assets and they're, you know, they're, they're basically mispriced because there's just some simply simple flawed assumptions that are causing too much discounting oblivion. That's the term, right? That's fine. Over time, right. they will grow and the market will have the value for what they are and it'll still be wrong about, you know, on the future side. But I can go right across the portfolio, go to renewables. Like if, if the measure of that optionality, the measure of that tail value that's not being captured for, for top tier assets is extreme in, by, you know, you can demonstrate that to an extreme through something like these potash royalties or a thousand year. We'll go to renewables. Resources never run. They're perpetual. These are mines that we can, our mines, they are mines. They mine resources above the earth instead of below. That's all. Um, you know, today they're getting cited on the best available resources and, and that will continue, right? They'll, they'll get built in order of their best, the best available wind and solar resource on average. And we buy them and they're, they're, you know, presented to us with a, an engineered life of the equipment that's meant to be 20 or 25 years. That's when the equipment is over. So that's the project life. But in 25 years, it'll still be the best resource. It'll be interconnected to the grids. Other sites will be harder to access. There'll be more nimbyism around other sites. So what's going to happen? The site's just going to get reinvested in. The equipment will get upgraded. And guess what? That equipment, 25 years from now, will be far more efficient. It'll capture more energy off the same footprint than it does today. So 25, 20, 25 years from now, you'll get a full, you know, expansion of the mine life or the, the reason of the project life, full on extension. And you'll get the equivalent to a mine expansion because there'll be more volume from that same footprint. And that will happen over and over and over and over again. So another clear example of that on the base and battery metal side, we've selected for mines. Chapada, another good example. We bought it in 2016. It was a stream on a copper mine in Brazil. 2016, you might remember, was not the best of times for prices or sentiment in the mining world. Fantastic time for what we were doing. This was this was as good as a get. Every other competing form of capital that traditionally served the mining industry basically just disappeared. Right? It was magic. Anyway, we bought the stream on Chapada. We were really enamored with the long-term growth potential of the, of the asset. And, you know, it's got a good competitive cost curve position. Obviously we're using depressed price techs in, in determining the, the price, not the value. Um, fast forward now, we're seven years in. It's run wonderfully for seven years. We received more revenues than we paid for the asset to begin with. When we bought it, it had a 40 year expected resource life in our minds. That was just all category resources against current production rate. So it's been mining successfully for seven years. Today, the implied resource life, if you take all of the category resources, is 50 or 60 years. So it's actually grown despite its depletion. 
Now the operator, Lundin, is talking about expanding the operation. And why not? Right? The resource life has gotten to the point that the production rate doesn't look optimized anymore. So they're going to make investments. They're going to expand that production rate, bring a whole bunch of cash flows forward over what we would have expected. So at minimum, you know, we've got a much longer life asset than we originally paid for. Uh, but it's also likely, in fact, that we're going to get, you know, not just life expansion here, but a significant production ex uh, expansion. Like take it through story after story, just like this. This is well. I know, I know. So I think I think we've done enough on on, on that. So you you, but these are these are things that you need to go to the the brokers and the people who kind of cover you and say, look, perhaps here's a new way of, of looking at it. There's a job which could get you a kind of step change in, you know, I guess realization of, of uh, the value that as you see it. That's one thing. You've also kind of got cash balances, and it's a case of you know how aggressive are you going to be with how you allocate that cash? Because ultimately, even as a billion dollar company, you know, having started at twenty cents and now at twenty two fifty seven, um, the, you got to keep pushing the growth component here. So where, what are the other again? Come back to these levers that you've got available to you in terms of, um, you know, whether it be. People see you as a, a dividend story, whether they see you as an as an aggressive acquisitor of the right assets for you know future uh, value, um, and you know because you you can't really affect how the companies that you've got royalties on do their business, other than say well, I've picked the right ones. They they're, they're going to do the best job possible, um, and and try and affect the way that the the market is is values you. So th those are the kind of tools available to you so this year what are the things that you're focusing on which will get you the value that you want you you believe that that people need to or will recognize this year I, I guess the backdrop that is to think about what we are and i guess what we are, are collectors of very rare things and they don't come along every day and when they come along you know we we see but other than that our job is mostly to be very careful about diluting current shareholders' interest into things that we already own that will naturally deliver all this growth that you're talking. And whether the markets recognize that today or tomorrow is another matter. I hope Robert is very successful in this, you know, charge that he's making about uh, having the world rethink um, these types of assets. That will be, that will be wonderful. And trust me, he's a far better voice for it than I am. Um, so like in terms of immediate Capital allocation priorities. I don't. I don't know. We have some debt on the books. It's not very stressful, but it's it's there. That could be one use. I mean, obviously, interest rates are going up, so there's a higher debt servicing cost. And but more importantly, I don't look at our debt levels as being such that they put in jeopardy uh, shareholders' ownership of the of the core assets. Like that's we're not into that kind of a situation. Against everything I've said so far. This is going to sound a little cute, maybe, but as far as growth investing goes, more shares of Altius is the best. Like that's the best royalty investment I can think of. There's more of a spread between market price and intrinsic value housed within our current structure than there is in almost anything we're seeing out there external. Right, everything that we buy has to measure up against the quality that we've already got, and you have to make sure you're not diluting that quality by by best succumbing to boredom or investor demands for noise and news you know these are these are we have really interesting challenges as a company in that regard well look i know you've been out of 25 years so you, you know you you are you, 
you've just seen what what's worked al- along the way. But so, but that do you mean share buyback, do, or do you mean not spending money when you shouldn't? What, what are you referring to? Well, I, I guess what it means is that because we believe that the assets that we have will naturally grow over time, it means we had to be very prudent about doing anything that involves equity in the business. So issuing equity is not just dilutive against the share price today and the revenue you're seeing today. It's dilutive about embedded growth up against embedded growth. If we were to do a merger with somebody or do a transaction that involved the issuance of share, well, what we're getting back better at least match in quality and an embedded growth uh, to what we already have. And, and yes, it ultimately means that um, buying back shares today increasing every single shareholder's ownership in these underlying assets that will grow actually has a real accelerating impact on long-term value creation. So I'm, I'm fully down with buying shares. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And then with, with regards to obviously, uh, not issuing more equity, what are the options available to you? Because you've obviously got a quite a big portfolio now. Are, are there are there are you starting to see a, a kind of shape or paint a picture of the types of assets that you've currently got in your portfolio that perhaps could be either flipped out, sold, um, you know, listed in their own right? Because some of them are going to start well, presumably needing to raise a lot of a lot of capital, and during that phase, it, it, there's that kind of growth element on, in terms of those stories. You know, whether it be let's let's, let's take for instance Lithium Royalty Corp. Um, you know, do you see that as a long term hold for you? I think it could be just in the sense that you know, irrespective of what your views are on the current Lithium price relative to where it needs to be long run, it's obviously an incentivization right now. But you go a step deeper on LRC and realize the assets that it's acquired all fit the bill I've been talking about. Like they've done such a remarkable job of attaching themselves to assets that will form the absolute base of long-term lithium supply. Resources expanding quickly. They'll expand over time. Um, So there's no real problem in my mind for, you know, that as as a business hold. Where I have a little bit of hesitancy is that we're not ultimately equity investors. I know we own our iron ore royalty interest through a shareholding in Labrador Iron Ore Royalty Corporation. What's different there is that it's a pass-through vehicle for the royalty. So owning the shares is the same as ultimately owning the royalty. We also own our renewables interests through a shareholding in uh, Altis Renewable, a public company, Altis Renewable Royalties. There we're about a 60% shareholder. Because we're a 60% shareholder, we, we ultimately consolidate that into our business. So just owning equity is where I have that little bit of hesitancy. But if I go deeper and say the underlying assets that it holds, LRC is built up and assembled that we've been part of, um, they're perfect match for our business. So time to be seen there. Where there's a, more of a, probably a more of a, of a thematic mismatch, if you will, is we found ourselves somehow with a royalty on a new pretty world-class looking gold discovery in Nevada. So that Silicon uh, discovery of, yeah. uh, of Anglogold. They're getting pretty bullish on this. I mean, a year ago, a CEO was talking about, you know, he saw potential for a few hundred thousand ounces a year for 10 years. By the end of the year, he was up to a few hundred thousand ounces a year for 30 years. Now he just published resources and he's talking about more to come on a new discovery that they haven't published on yet. 
that actually is supposedly the crown jewel of the portfolio. He's already published 8 million ounces in two years, and he's got crown jewels. He hasn't talked to it. Obviously, there's a major world-class discovery here. We're not a precious metals royalty company. This came from our exploration effort. Our cost on this is probably negative. Right? This is not something we, you know, we, we went out after. But in our exploration business, we're, we're just fairly commodities agnostic. And that's how this has come to us. Um, precious metals royalties on assets like this are highly thought after. There's a hungry precious metals royalty company group out there that, that um, this stuff is as good as it gets. I suspect that that royalty has a higher value within their structures than in Altius's broader diversified structure. And so if value creation for an Altius shareholder can result from us selling that, or even better, maybe even swapping it for something that feels of similar quality in the non-precious metal space, so trading with a precious metals royalty company you know, for a non-precious metals asset, that will be great. Um, yeah, so generally speaking, we're not sellers. We're collectors of rare things, right? That then, and you buy those and... But but some of that, but, but, but I did, I'm glad you went there because I, I wanted to go there with 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 with, with Anglo Gold. Um, he kind of doesn't fit the the, the brand. Um, and if there's a monetization event which is best for shareholders, whether it be early or or, or later, that's something that obviously you you'll you'll look at. But t- tidying up the portfolio is important as it is gold, as it is with coal. So you, what what's the update on that? Yeah, so we have royalties on these coal mines in Alberta, just for background, anyone doesn't know. They're basically mine mount operations, so they feed immediately adjacent uh, power plants. That portfolio actually came to us as part of a package deal that brought us the um, the uh, uh, potash royalty. That's sort of how our, our history uh, with those began. Um when we bought them, one of the mines, the main one, had an expected res- or life to take it out to about 2055. That was when it was mandated to close by regulation. Canada changed rules soon after we bought them, and they said basically no more coal burning after 2030. So a huge truncation of the expected life, and quite a blow, really, uh, to our business, especially at the scale we were at then. And, uh, you know, we dusted ourselves off, and what we came up with was this idea that we'd take whatever revenue is going to come from coal, whatever is left, and on a kind of an internal allocation basis, we would use that to try to build up this renewables business. Well, that's happened and it's been successful. So this is the last year we expect to receive coal revenue. But interestingly, when I look at the ramp up of revenue profile from the renewables business, like if not in perfect match, very close, that's going to supersede the levels that we've ever received from coal, and certainly in the fullness of time, will grow well beyond. So long and long answer, but basically, coal—you're looking at its very last days in our business, and you're watching it be replaced. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And I, I just, I just thought—I so know we talked about it before, but um, it's kind of interesting. I think this this talk of the the various um, coal companies up there, you know, led by. Australian group um, looking to litigation against the Alberta government. Uh, we'll be interested to see how that all, all plays out. Personally, I think it's all madness, and uh, but there we go. Um, it's what it is. So, with, well, you, know, you, so can't, we, you can't really. It is what it is. It is what it is. But we had that moment too. Of, this can't be happening. 
uh, but it was, and it was clear. And broadly speaking, I guess the, you know, we step back far enough, way beyond Alberta and you say, okay, coal is not what people want anymore. And what's meant to replace it is renewables. So we were faced with either divesting or, you know, just running out the revenues and saying, that's it, it's over. We were faced with a decision like, you know, Project Lemonade. How do we save the day? How do we save our shareholders from that? hit and from that loss and uh thankfully worked out like renewables business fully eclipsed what the coal ever was and certainly in the fullness of time has far brighter future even you know compared to what the coal when it looked like at its rosiest yeah no i, no, I agree with that like uh, you know all, all businesses go through bump, bumps up in the road and this one seems to bump you in the right direction so um on to bigger and better things which is, which is all great news and um, so look brian I, I just it was like great great to kind of catch up with you there so what when you sort of look back over the last 25 years that's a number you mentioned to me at the beginning of this conversation um you know share price Obviously, it has tra- changed dramatically. But in terms of you know returns on on the business uh, for you, what, what, what's what's that look like? Was, was it what you thought it could be? I was twenty four years old. I didn't know what could be. I didn't even know what compounding meant at the time. To be fully honest with you, but obviously, when we hit the twenty fifth anniversary, actually, someone sent me a note on it. But um, you know, we we did uh, indulge ourselves in a little bit of a look back. And it turns out that over that 25 years, share price and dividends uh, ultimately compounded. We've been compounding it over 20% a year for 25 years. That feels pretty neat. But yeah, on the other hand, it's also intimidating because we got to keep it going now, right? That's that's the challenge we have to accept too. Well, that's what that's what we've been talking about today. And it sounds like you've got plans to uh, continue to do so. So, uh, Brian, look, appreciate your time. I mean, you're um, busy. Uh, so appreciate you uh, coming back on the show and letting us know how things stand. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it.